According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Luke chapter 14 as we return to uh, our Life of Christ series. Episode 21 in the last Judean and pre ministry of Jesus, Meal with a Pharisee Ruler. Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And when he said, and he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. All right, this is where we started last week, and we'll get right back to it here today. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests, we are not defiling the temple. We are not to defile his courts. So let's make sure we're in fellowship and prepared to operate in our priestly function. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before Your throne of grace this morning once again, thankful for the truth of Your Word, thankful for the privilege we have to assemble together and the blessing we have to study the living and abiding Word of God. We ask for uh, distractions to be set aside and concentration upon this material here. Help us, Father, to understand the kingdom principles and to anticipate uh, the glories that are going to be revealed when Your Son is revealed. And in the meantime, Father, help us to be heavenly-minded and help us to recognize what the true priorities are in life. So, Father, uh, guide us into the truth. We thank you once again in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I think there's two dangers anytime you deal with a kingdom passage. The first item is to get so uh, wrapped up in the things to come that uh, you forget that there is application to be made here on a daily basis, day by day, moment by moment. The second danger is uh, is just the opposite, to uh, get wrapped up in kingdom theology or concepts to think that we can make it happen now and to try to transform this world into, uh, into the kingdom here on earth. That's not going to happen until Christ returns. Either danger is a problem. We want to be properly oriented and uh, hopefully we can keep our bearings straight as we go through passages such as this. All right. Having dismissed the Pharisees' warning regarding Herod, Jesus then dines with a Pharisee. He dines with a Pharisee ruler. And uh, we examine the vocabulary of an archon, who the ruler of the Pharisees is here. Saw some of the other uses of archon, A-R-C-H-O-N, number 758 in the Strong's Index. And uh, reviewed some of the, uh, the vocabulary and the application to be there. Jesus was there to eat bread, but they were there to find fault. They were there to find an occasion to trap him. And uh, the vocabulary para tereo, number 3906, under subpoint B is what we examined one week ago. Under uh, point two, we have Dr. Luke and his diagnosis here. This man, uh, this patient was suffering from dropsy. Uh, we don't really use doctors today, don't use dropsy so much anymore. They prefer to call it uh, edema, edema, edema is what they call it. Anyway, uh, fluid, water uh, retention in the tissues, and it could be indicative of uh, cancer or heart problems, liver problems, kidney problems, any number of issues associated with that can cause the water buildup and the uh, extraordinary swelling there in uh, in the tissue. Uh, 
Well, better than any doctor diagnosis here, Jesus is just going to heal him and, and be done with it. And uh, appreciate the miracle happening the way that it does. Under point three, Jesus challenges his critics. He challenged, now he's done this before. He challenged them in chapter six, challenges them again in chapter 13. It's getting more pointed each time he does so. This time, though, he follows up the challenge with some very pointed teaching, a pair of parables, uh, and these parables that focus on pride. All right. So he proceeds to preach a pair of parables on pride in verses 7 through 14. And this is where we got through the first of these. And this is where we want to pick up again on the issues here involved. So verses 7 through 14 then for point three. And then we'll move on to the uh, second parable that comes in verses 15 and well, really 16 and following down through verse 24. Social embarrassments. Here's the first parable, verses 7 and following. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. In other words, just go ahead and start there. Have the attitude that you are the least important person in the room. All right. Whether it's true or not, have that as your attitude. You may be very important as far as the social structure is concerned, but that's not uh, for you to insist upon. So go ahead and recline at the last place so that the one who has invited you comes. He may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all. Uh, who are at the table with you. And this is an opportunity we have in uh, the communication of our spiritual viewpoint. It may be an opportunity we have in a social setting to reflect the humility that uh, really is a portrayal of the humility of Christ. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, a lot of this is dealing with Roman culture, uh, Jewish culture, uh, various uh, different cultures of the ancient world had similarities amongst them, uh, no more so than perhaps I think the Romans reached the pinnacle on this because everything that that they uh, were focused on as a citizen of Rome focused on the most morium, focused on the the uh, traditions, the expectations of their society and the social ranks that they moved up to in their uh, clan and in their in their tribe, as 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 it were. So a lot of this uh, would uh, impact a Gentile audience, but it was the same thing with the Jewish audience as well. They were very much prideful over their tribal background. And in the realm of their religion, in the realm of Pharisaic Judaism, uh, they created entirely new layers of esteem. Uh, if you had more scripture memorized, if you had more rulings that were accepted and so forth, if you were one of the noteworthy rabbis and teachers in the various schools like the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai and so forth, you could create a reputation for yourself that gave you that higher standing. And you were considered a more exalted teacher the more disciples you had, for example. So when Christ is gathering thousands, that's huge. That is absolutely devastating to the Pharisees and the other rabbis that weren't gathering nearly that many kind of followers. See, So when they started to peel away, of course, that puffed up the, uh, the self-inflated attitude of the, the, the prideful folks as well. Anyway, this is part of what we deal with. And I think the parable is pretty well self-explanatory. 
the social embarrassments involved here illustrate an eternal principle. Because to them, it's the worst thing in the world. Crushing. To, in front of all your friends, in front of all your peers, to be asked to move down to a lower seat. That is absolutely the worst thing in the world that could happen. Well, there's far worse things than being embarrassed in a temporal life circumstance or detail of life. A social embarrassment. Yeah, it's not fun. No one likes it. But it's not the end of the world. All right. The far greater and eternal embarrassment will come when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ and you hear, you wicked, lazy slave. All right. That ought to be our focus. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear... The, uh, the ultimate standing, as it were, is not in time, but it is in the full reward that we receive. And, and we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. God is able to make us stand. And each one of us will stand. Each one of us will give an account. And that's what we need to be focused on. And the exaltation on that day will be a reverse proportion to our humility here in time. That's the principle that's being taught here. Humble yourself. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you spend your days here in, on earth promoting yourself, then you can anticipate a very humble um, judgment at the Bema. All right? That's the nature of how God evaluates our mental attitudes. And so this, of course, is perfectly consistent with Proverbs 29, uh, James 4, the whole parable here. Now, did we actually turn to these verses or we ran out of time before we turned to these verses last week? All right, well then let's look at it. Proverbs 29, 23. You probably have them memorized anyway. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And I think, uh, you know, there's applications there that people view as being earthly. Are there temporal life benefits to humility? Of course. You know, if you have this attitude in, in temporal life, then you never f find yourself in these social embarrassment places, which is what Jesus was saying. Go ahead and take the, the lowest seat available and don't be all worked up about it. And then when the host invites you to move up and sit in a place of honor, well, then it's a delightful surprise and you, you're thankful for it, but you're not craving it. You don't need it. See, you just assume that you are the least impressive person everywhere you go and so it doesn't bother you any. A humble spirit will obtain honor. Now, so there's a temporal blessing there. But think about how much more uh, true this is when you take it into an eternal scale on the uh, eternal evaluation that we face. And then uh, James 4.10. The New Testament book of Proverbs is the book of James. Wisdom literature for the church age in the book of James. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. You know, the... Uh, this entire paragraph here, this entire contrast, as you submit, therefore, to God, it says in verse six uh, or even up to verse five, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Is God just making stuff up when he puts things in the Bible? No, there's a point to this being here and we need to learn from it. He gives greater grace, it says in verse six. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what side of that line do you want to be on? You want to be on the side that God is graciously supporting or do we be on the side that finds yourself under divine opposition? Submit, therefore, to God. In other words, in humility. 
Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And uh, in all the concepts and vocabulary and all the studies you can ever do on double-mindedness, maybe we can just boil it down in simplicity's sake and say, let's evaluate the double-mindedness here for what what the context of this passage is dealing with. The double-mindedness is the lack of humility. If you humble yourself, then you have the the mind of, of Christ. You have God's thinking on your behalf if you start to exalt yourself well then that's double-mindedness because you're pursuing your own opinions rather than uh, the mind of christ in uh, in your own personal application so humble yourself in the presence of the lord he will exalt you so there's our first parable social embarrassments illustrate an eternal principle but then there's the principle of hospitality in verses 12 through 14 grace hospitality I'll put the point back up in a moment, but let me just uh, blank it out here. Let's look at verses 12 through 14, because this is the second parable that he gives. And it's another parable that absolutely chokes pride uh, right from the beginning. He went on to say, verse 12, to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Is this passage saying you can't have a meal with your family members? (laughs) Is this saying you can never, ever invite family over for a meal and so forth? Well, no, it's different. The, um, I think the term reception is key or luncheon or dinner is key here the idea is what are you attempting to accomplish when you are hosting people what is your objective to hospitality is it to be hospitable is it to be a testimony of grace is it to be a portrayal of grace or do you have ulterior motives at work is every uh, every social engagement also a political engagement Is it also a business engagement? Are you also networking and manipulating situations where you're hoping to gain? Are you inviting uh, folks that are more important than you to impress them? And then hopefully then they will return it and invite you to one of their engagements. And that gets you into higher circles. That gets you into additional networking opportunities with folks that maybe you were not entitled to network with prior, you understand. And so there's a pattern that's at work here. And there's a wonderful um, suggestion that's offered here. Uh, like when he gives the suggestion, go ahead and sell everything you have and, and follow me. Be completely, temporally destitute and follow me. All right, well, that rich young ruler wasn't going to go there, was he? All right. And he gives that as a suggestion. Um, and, you know, we're going to apply the principle in our own application, it doesn't mean that, again, that you can never invite your family over for dinner and things like that. You want to understand what's the principle at work here and how do I apply the principle in my own application. So, here's your point. Grace hospitality. Grace hospitality makes grace gifting occasions an imitation of God the Father. This whole paragraph is describing God the Father. And God the Father invites us to a banquet that we can't possibly deserve. We don't. Po- we can't possibly pay Him back. There's no future occasion where we can go ahead and return it and invite God the Father to our own banquet and impress Him with, with what we've got going on. 
When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you get to be an imitator of God the Father at that point. So grace hospitality makes grace gifting occasions an imitation of God the Father. And it's uh, remarkable here. In fact, one of the other guests immediately understands this parable and, and places it into a kingdom reference. Because in verse 15, you'll notice, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed or happy is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He immediately locked on to what Jesus was saying there and, and understood. We as the sinners, as the lost estate in Adam, we're the ones that are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We're the ones that are invited to a feast from God the Father, and we have no right to even be here. That could become our pattern then. We can be a, a type of God the Father with such a gracious hospitality opportunity. You talk about something that would uh, shatter somebody's mind. If, if, again, if their whole idea of these business lunches are to form alliances, to form business connections, to form political uh, connections and so forth, if social life is designed to advance uh, politically, economically, or whatever else, then ask yourself, what, what are you really doing? What is the purpose for social life as far as that goes? I think our, our application is even greater because this is in a dispensation of Israel context. We get to bring it into a church application as part of the royal family of God and consider the blessings and opportunities we have there to say, you know what, today I want to provide a grace blessing for a member of the royal family of God. And find uh, and be able to host uh, a meal or be able to host uh, uh, whatever, maybe a, maybe a weekend, maybe a trip, who knows, whatever you want to do. Just say, you know what, I've got brothers and sisters and, of, of humble means and I want to be a blessing and I want to provide. And there it is. Well, you talk about uh, just the total opposite of how the world operates or how the world thinks. This is it. The idea that, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to host, uh, you know, a homeless person or someone that can't uh, can't repay, or someone I'm going to I'm going to take them to a meal, or I'm going to have them in my home, or uh, why would I do that? See, well, different ways. Anyway, I think you can draw your own application and your own thing there. I want to move on now to verses uh, 16 and following. I think. This man here that references the kingdom is on target. He's thinking with the Lord as the Lord is thinking. And then that even allows him to proceed and give another message in verses 16 and following. So he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. And in the process of this parable, it's not... We're not told uh, how far in advance the, the uh, invitations went out, if it was same day or uh, it was probably multiple days ahead of time. And, uh, and yet, as the hour approached, the uh, servant was sent to uh, notify them that uh, it was acceptable to arrive. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it and please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So again, you've got a, a, a social um, strata in view there in verse 21 that's similar to the social strata that was in view back in verse 13. 
And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room. And so however many of the poor, crippled, blind, and lame that responded, they showed up, and maybe not all of them, but whoever responded, responded, but there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. All right, so here's a parable. It comes back again in the Gospel of Matthew with even stronger terminology, and we want to understand in both applications what's happening here. Um, you ever been taught this passage before? Other pastors, other churches, other ministries? It's a hard passage to teach, and a lot of pastors take different approaches with it in terms of is this a gospel invitation? Is this uh, you know a kingdom entrance uh, thing? What are we dealing with? Well, let's give it to you under point four. I'm going to spell it out under some subpoints. And hopefully we'll do real well with it here today. But in response to the mention of the kingdom, he'd given two parables that are really kind of timeless. I think the, um, the, uh, the, the idea of uh, seating arrangements and having humility is, is timeless. It applies to the Gentiles, the Jews, the church. It really is not restricted to a, a, a dispensational understanding. Likewise, um, the hospitality of when you give invitations yourself and when you host other people, it's timeless. Applies to the Gentiles, applies to the Jews, applies to the church, probably more so to the church. Um, But then this man that responds to the kingdom, when he says, happy is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, he's looking forward to a messianic fulfillment. He's looking forward to a kingdom uh, age. And by taking it into that dispensational understanding to a kingdom context, Jesus then replies and starts to give kingdom information. So it's in response to the mention of the kingdom. Jesus presented an additional parable. He goes one more. Beyond the two he's already given, he gives one more. Another parable in a kingdom dinner context. Verses 16 through 24. Now we've already seen, remember what we saw back in chapter 13. We saw... um, the outer darkness, and we taught some principles there where there's other feasting that's going to take place. There is a, a great dinner that's going to take place that's going to feature Jewish prophets. And that's a reward feast that's going to be given for faithful Jewish believers. And they're going to be able to come in and dine with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Jewish prophets. See, there's going to be other feasting in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb, and I believe the wedding Supper and the wedding feast are two separate events. One will be heavenly, that's our private supper with the Father. One will be earthly, that's going to be the feast where the invitations go out for victorious Jews and Gentiles to observe as well. So there's going to be a lot of eating going on, and I think we do well if we can keep our um, kingdom dinner passages in a little bit of a... Of a um, a little bit of a distinction. Let's go ahead and keep them separate until, because there's a danger you just lump it all together. We're going to have one great big thousand year long uh, gluttony session, right? <laughs> there is not going to be a big thousand long, thousand year long gluttony session in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a number of engagements that will take place during that time. Anyway, so here is a message that he delivers in a kingdom dinner context. And I think we do well if we uh, keep it separate, particularly from the Jewish prophet reward banquet. Um, Now, this parable is given again a second time. It's given later in the Gospel of Matthew, over in Matthew 22, with even stronger terminology. In Matthew 22, he goes so far as to explain that it is a wedding feast and that it is a father's wedding feast that's prepared for his son. 
uh, in the kingdom. So just hold your finger here for the moment and let's get over to Matthew 22 and we'll see the uh, similarities. And it's so similar, I think it's fair enough to say it's the same message, but given in a stronger um, reality. Matthew 22 The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. All right, so this is now stronger language than we have in Luke. And Luke is just simply a man with a, with a, uh, a dinner with various guests that are being invited. But here it's a king rather than a man, and it's a wedding feast as opposed to another nondescript kind of dinner engagement. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. There is an invitation list, a finite invitation list with people on the list, people not on the list. And they were unwilling to come. Similar language to what we have in in Luke, and we'll be back to that. We're going to discuss what's the nature of an invitation that's given sovereignly, given by grace, but is responded to volitionally, either embraced or rejected, accepted or rejected. You understand that? So again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat and livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So similar language, a little bit stronger than what we just read in Luke, but largely uh, an identical message to what, we've, what we're dealing with here today. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Wow, that's more intense, isn't it? That's more intense. And you see the difference between when Christ gives this parable in Luke 14, it's still in a winter time frame, December thereabouts. The cross is still three months away. It's still, but as it gets to Matthew 22 now at this point, now the cross is approaching. Now the rejection of the Christ is, is very vivid. Now the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem already is in his mind as he starts to give these eschatological messages. So uh, those who were invited were not worthy. The truth is they weren't worthy when they were invited, but that's, that's another issue. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you can find there invite to the wedding feast. So those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And um, we will be more detailed about this, the evil and good, in uh, when we get to Matthew 22, uh, closer to or when we get to this actual event in the harmony. Um, something else we want to understand, the feasts that happen very early in the millennial kingdom are believers only because there's no unbelievers on the planet. Unbelievers are removed after the second advent. Unbelievers are cast into hell for the thousand year reign. Only believers are present. But as the millennium proceeds and more and more generations start getting born, not all of them get saved. And by the end of the millennial reign of Christ, there's a large proportion of unbelievers that are ready to rebel at Gog Magog and, and, and demand the abdication of Jesus Christ off his throne. So one of the hardest things I think that, that pastors need to do when they're evaluating a millennial dinner passage is, is try to fix where in the kingdom this takes place. Is this early? Is this mid? Is this towards the end? At what point could there be in, in the presence of believers and unbelievers here, uh, evil and good alike, um, and I think is one of the clues, one of the markers you have to look at as far as how you place where this uh, 
where this feast occurs, even also evaluating, is it possible that there can be a banquet that uh, is preliminary to the kingdom, a banquet that precedes the sheep and goat judgment, a banquet that precedes the actual inception of that thousand years before the unbelievers are cast out. Might even be an opportunity to uh, for a last gospel message prior to the sheep and goat judgment uh, purging the unbelievers from planet Earth. Anyway, so keep those things in mind. I'm giving you more questions than answers today, hoping that at least we'll have some things to think about and chew on and consider before we get to before we get to things. All right, now here's a guy that's not dressed right. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests in verse 11, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He said, friend, how did you come to be here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. All right, now that's the Matthew context. That's the Matthew context. And we're going to handle that when we get to, as we approach the, uh, in the Mount Olivet discourse and the, the, the week or the night in which he's betrayed. All right, now, back to Luke 14, because he's, uh, this is earlier. This is three months prior. All right. And I think a lot of these messages are messages that he gave repeatedly in various places over and over again in different places, like an itinerant circuit rider, like a, a, a preacher would go from one town to another town to another town. And he could deliver the message multiple times in different places where he's going. <laughs> kind of like I got to do last week, got to go up to Spokane and give some Psalm 119 classes and that, you know, it was the same stuff I taught down here, but different context, different audience, different uh, opportunity so you, you grab some notes of something you taught before and you teach it again well all right now back to luke 14 because what i think here different journals and different scholars say well this is the same message others say no it's a different message i think it is the same message but with increased intensity with uh, increased um, application for the kingdom in matthew not as much here get back to luke now he's not called a king he's called a man and it's not called a wedding feast. It's simply called a big dinner. All right. So there are some distinctions to be made. But I think the pattern is pretty well identical. There's invitations sent out. Uh, people have excuses not to, not to uh, redeem the invitation, not to accept the free gift. And, uh, and then so additional folks that weren't, first of all, invited are now brought in as well. So let's get some details as far as it goes. Now, back to Luke. I stopped reading at, I didn't go through the whole way, did I? So let's get the rest of this here then. Um, I stopped with 21, didn't I? Okay. So uh, the slave came back, reported this to his master. The head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So he goes beyond the initial guest list and he just grabs additional people. Nothing about soldiers and armies and destroying uh, Jerusalem or anything like that. And then the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. There is still room. So the master said to the slave, well then, go out to the highways and along the hedges. We're going to expand the scope of this beyond the immediate geography. Compel them to come in. Well, I don't like the term compel, but we'll handle that. So that uh, my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. All right, so let's spell this out because I think there's important application to be made here. Dispensational application to be made here. Subpoint A, the original invitees have every excuse to not accept the invitation. 
The original invitees have every excuse to not accept. Hmm. Better things to do. All right. Got to rearrange their sock drawer. Yeah. Sometimes there's just, you know, important things. And, uh, you know, someone invites you to go do something and you think, well, you know, I'd like to, but got priorities, right? And even if they're valid, you still have to prioritize and understand what comes first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What are you doing? And so uh, different things. And every one of these, by the way, rings hollow. They're similar to the excuses of discipleship when Jesus was calling the, the apostles or calling the disciples. And, and there, of course, there was a handful there that, well, you know, my dad's dying. I've got to bury my dad or I've got, uh, you know, got to plow a field, different things like that. And he said, uh, you know, let the dead bury the dead or no man puts his hand to the plow looking back is, is worthy of the kingdom of heaven, things of that nature. Uh, so many of the same volitional battles that encounter in terms of of uh, discipleship, we see similarities here in uh, the choices that are made. And if you want to think about it, now, if you want to think of this in an evangelistic realm, all right, well, then what do you have? You have the opportunity, you have the free offer, you have the provision for eternal life made in Christ Jesus, and recognize the insanity of the unbeliever who has other things going on, you know, as far as that goes. Well, And I'm not saying this is primarily evangelistic in this context. I'm just saying you can think of it in that way and you can you can observe some parallels. How about that? Update available. Go away. No. Remind me again in one day. There we go. Okay. That's even worse than getting a phone call. That's terrible. All right. Never mind. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna illustrate something. All right. So this is not primarily an evangelistic passage, but you can consider because it's a it's a free offer to be accepted or rejected, well then of course you gotta Think about eternal life and salvation and, and different things there. Uh, but ultimately, this is with view to um, a kingdom application. Now, who are these original invitees? I'm going to tell you right now, the, the fulfillment of this is taking place in the nation of Israel. Israel was God's vested steward. Israel. This is not a church age passage. This is a dispensation of Israel passage. So who are the invitees? Israel was God's vested steward, entrusted with the oracles of God. Entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, they are the recipients of the written invitation. The invitations were written invitations sent out. And then the uh, servants that go forth verbally to let them know that it's prepared, that now is the time and here it is. Think about John the Baptist and Jesus and the twelve disciples here traveling around as the servants uh, notifying the invite, the invitees that uh, here it is. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John the Baptist's first series of messages. That was Jesus' first series of messages. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They've been in possession of the written invitation now since Moses. 
since the Scriptures started to be placed in writing. And so you have Moses and the Pentateuch, and you've got the prophets, and you've got all of this. They've got a, a complete canon as far as Hebrew Scriptures are concerned. From Genesis to Malachi, all right? I hope you're familiar with Romans 3 and the structure of this. I think there's a, a lot of doctrine that comes out of this as we want to understand stewardship and what does it mean to be a steward. In Romans 1, we've got uh, Gentile immoral depravity. In Romans 2, we've got Jewish moral depravity. And so what advantage has the Jew? Starts off in Romans 3.1. What advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, the primary benefit to the Jewish race, to the Jewish people, to Israel. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, uh, verbal prophetic messages from living speaking prophets and written prophetic messages through the inspiration of the Hebrew canon of Scripture. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. The preeminent benefit to stewardship is your custodial responsibilities to the Bible. Now, of course, it's the church. The church is the today's steward on planet Earth. We are the ones that are entrusted with God's revelation, both in the Hebrew canon and the Greek canon of Scripture. So we have a tremendous advantage in our own stewardship. But this, of course, is describing the contrast from Gentiles to Jews and the advantage Israel had during the time of their stewardship. And then, of course, it goes on. What then? If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And it goes on to describe how the accountability is increased because what they've been given has been so much greater in different applications there. So Israel was God's vested steward entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, they had the written invitation. Everything that that pertains to this coming kingdom, that pertains to this coming wedding feast, that that pertains to the coming Messiah and the, the, the... Heavenly banquets on earth. Israel were the one, was the steward that had received that uh, invitation. Subpoint two, the religious leaders then, those that were responsible to in the things of the Word of God, the religious leaders were then the recipients of the written kingdom dinner invitations. Israel, as the steward, receives the oracles of God. The religious leaders then, the ones responsible for teaching. And who was responsible for teaching the Word of God to the Jewish people? Their leaders, their priests, their Levites, their uh, princes, every tribal prince, their clan chieftains. You see, it's interesting to view the leaders of the Jewish people was not only, obviously the The priesthood had the number one role, but it didn't stop there. The king was expected to be a Bible teacher. Before he could take office, the king had to write his own handwritten copy of the Torah. It's a wonderful way to impress it on their mind. In fact, it's a method I've even adopted in my own family for different family members, children I'm talking about. I don't make Sharon do it, but maybe I should. You want to reinforce a Bible principle? Nothing can do it faster than here's a stack of notebook paper, here's a pen, here's a Bible. 
copy this chapter from the Bible in your own handwriting. <laughs> the king had to copy the entire Torah before he could assume office. That was a requirement in the Old Testament. Who were the religious leaders? Because it wasn't just simply the priests. The priests, the Levites, the political leaders, the tribal princes, and all the rest. Every tribe was broken down into clans and families, and we understand that. That's why in Ezekiel 34, when the rebuke comes to the shepherds of Israel, it's encompassing every last branch of those spiritual leaders. They all had shepherding responsibility. So these religious leaders, and it's amazing, these guys memorized vast sections of Scripture. Some of them had memorized the entire Old Testament and never understood what it meant. They searched the Scriptures. They searched Moses, thinking that in them they have eternal life. And, and Jesus says, you know, these, they're writing about me. <laughs> they memorized the words, but didn't get the message. Because, well, again, it's the humility versus pride contrast. And because they were so prideful over what they were learning, well, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And they, uh, they failed in humility to identify the Christ that the Scriptures wrote on. And rather than leading others to the kingdom, they were obstacles to the kingdom. In fact, they were making the, their followers twice as much sons of hell as they themselves were. The systems of pride only get worse as each subsequent generation of Pharisees builds upon the, the greater pride of their forefathers. It's a terrible thing. So as we spell it out here, then here we have the, the original invitees. So then additional invitations come out. Point B, the streets and the lanes, the streets and the lanes. LaRosa and I were looking at some of this vocabulary last night. The streets and the lanes provide underprivileged invitees to join the privileged class. And what's interesting this pridefulness that had created these divisions of these class distinctions within Israel to the privileged versus unprivileged, what we call today underprivileged, all right? The um, upper classes versus the middle and lower classes of social standing. In other words, the crowds that the Pharisees would never dream of talking to, eating with, teaching. The idea that you would bring in a, a room full of under, uh, you know, lower class individuals off the streets and feed them. Think about the opportunity you have to do while you're feeding them. Open up a passage of Scripture. Start explaining to them the things of the Word of God. Instead of your own little circles and your own little mutual admiration societies and your own little uh, theological uh, impress uh, one another type of things. Let me show you my great breakthrough and, and deep insight into uh, these theolo the theological matters so that my peers can be all impressed with my scholarship. Or you grab some folks and maybe they're not even literate. Maybe they can't even read the Bible for themselves. And you have an opportunity to say, you know what? Let's look at the Scriptures and see what the Word of God says. And particularly in the Jewish stewardship, <clears throat> these folks in the streets and the lanes, these uh, carpenters and laborers and, and uh, ditch diggers and whoever else you have here, um, are they not Jewish? Are they not a part of the kingdom? Are they not the covenant nation of Israel? Of course they are. Absolutely they are. Provides the underprivileged invitees to join the privileged class in accepting the free grace offer. And it's interesting. 
So uh, go out once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Now, there, that's the crowd that would be excluded from a Pharisee banquet. But they are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have their tribal allotments. They have their, uh, their uh, millennial blessings that are waiting for them. Uh, none, of those, uh, none of those land grant promises, none of the eternal promises to Israel, none of that is impacted in any way by their social status. That's entirely um, a creation of pride under rabbinic Judaism. I find that interesting. And then thirdly, even beyond the highways and hedges. The highways and hedges. Now, I don't call it a compelling. I call it an urgent heralding. The highways and hedges, urgent heralding. Go out into the highways and along the hedges and urgently herald them to come in. Compelling is not compatible with a kingdom offer. And the vocabulary itself also allows for, uh, allows for an urgent invitation. Such as when Jesus urges His disciples to get into a boat, for example. He didn't compel them to get into a boat. But he urgently invites them to get into the boat and cross over to the other side. There's other applications of this verb in the New Testament that, because uh, to me, compelling is too strong. Compelling is at the core of uh, different struggles and battles that we engage in when we talk about sovereignty and free will. Does God compel our volition? Well, there's a segment of Christianity that believes he does. And this is a verse they use to prove that he does, that God compels volition. See, well, be careful there, because does the verb sustain compelling in this kind of a, an application when the, the invitees weren't compelled, the streets and lanes weren't compelled, uh, the highways and hedges is just um, an increase. I just, I just find compelling to be a, a, an unfortunate translation here. It is a strong invitation, an urgent heralding. But this now allows for Gentiles to come in as well. Out there in the highways and the hedges. Get out from beyond the Jewish neighborhoods. Get out of the Jewish uh, context of where you are. Bring the Gentiles in as well. Bring the Gentiles in as well. And it's remarkable. Now this isn't foreshadowing the church in any way. The church is still a mystery. But the kingdom of heaven will have Jewish believers reaping their rewards and dining with the king and dining with the king's son. We'll have Gentile believers reaping their rewards, dining with the king, dining with the king's son. Let's, uh, let's spell out a couple of items here. Do I have one more slide? I do. The verb here is anankadzo. A-N-A-N-K-A-Z-O. It's actually a G-K, but the G becomes an N in front of the kappa. Alpha, nu, alpha, gamma, kappa. Alpha, Zeta, Omega. A-N-A-N-K-A-Z-O. Number 315. It's only used nine times. All right. And it has a weaker sense. It doesn't have to be compel. You can use the language compel if you want to use it idiomatically to show how forceful it is. If you're going to make a compelling argument, we say. Right? I'm going to make a compelling argument. Now, does that mean I force you to believe what I believe? No. But I use the image, I use the language of compelling 
to show you how strong the case is that I'm making. And if it really is that strong of a case, then you will view that and you will agree with it because it's a compelling argument. It's a compelling case. And so we have Matthew 14:22 and Mark 6:45, two other uses where I think the forceful nature of the invitation is clear, and yet um, it's not truly a coercing of volition in any respect. Matthew 14:22. As I said, this is uh, on an occasion where he's compelling his disciples to go into a boat. And uh, he feeds the 5,000, and uh, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. So immediately, he, anakadzo, he made, impelled, compelled the disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So what are we left to conclude there? That he ordered them into the boat. He urged them into the boat. He uh, utilized some kind of divine miracle power and forced them into the boat. Is that what he did? Did he dispatch a legion of angels to lay hold of these 12 disciples and, and you know, strong arm them and shove them into a boat and push the boat off? Is that what he did? All right. But it, it is a strong term. I'm not trying to say it's not a strong term. Uh, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that it's a very strong term, but it's not... Um, it's unfortunate that the uh, New American Standard text and other modern English texts use compel. And I think it's unfortunate because compel is a, is a problem term in, in theological debates. All right? That there's a crowd that wants to insist on God's sovereignty forcing our decisions. And they love verbs like this that say, see, God compels us to do things. All right? So uh, immediately he made the disciples get into a boat. And so he urged them, he impelled them, he uh, instructed them, gave them orders, made them do it. Nevertheless, of course, what are they going to do? Are they going to obey him? Are they going to do what they're told to do? Of course. And then he sends the crowds away, goes up on the mountain to pray, and then the boat gets halfway across the lake and he has to walk across the water and meet them there. Same thing in Mark 6.45. Mark 6:45, which I think is the identical context. Yeah, after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he himself was sending the crowd away. And so, back to Luke 14 then, as the, as the invitations get stronger and stronger and stronger, the written invitations to the original invitees, the Jewish leaders, the verbal instructions, the verbal invitations to the underclass, the... Uh, the uh, underprivileged lower classes of Jewish society, they're still kingdom recipients. They're invited in, and it's even stronger language that's used there. As the um, uh, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here. See, it's, it sounds like uh, bring in here. It sounds like, again, is that sovereignty? There's no volition involved. How do they bring them in? Do they pick them up and carry them in? How do they bring them in? What's well, a stronger term showing the urgency of this invitation? And then likewise, go out into the highways along the hedges and compel them, strongly urge them, strongly urge them, make them, if you want to use that language, but strongly urge them to come in so that my house may be filled. And as the language gets more and more intense, I think it's a uh, reflection not of 
volition being coerced or not of, uh, of uh, you know, forced acceptance of a gift. You can't force somebody to take a gift. That's not a gift. But it's as the language gets stronger and stronger and stronger, what that communicates is the urgency as the time is getting closer and closer and closer. Because remember back in chapter 13, this door is going to shut. The door is going to shut. And once it's shut, then all the begging and pleading and crying, you say, well, they're there volitionally then, aren't they? You know, pounding and begging and please, let us in, let us in. Well, the door is shut. And so as the, time, as the proximity gets closer and closer, the urgency builds. And that's very identical to where we are. It's compatible with our own church age evangelism, our own role as ambassadors in, in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So that's going to be our last passage today, 2 Corinthians 5.20. I hope you can understand some of the uh, elements here. And I, all I really wanted to do was not confuse everybody with the vocabulary on Anconza. I just wanted to illustrate how the, uh, the idea of coercion is not required for this verb. That go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in is not the only way to translate Anconza, that the, these people are not compelled into the kingdom any more than the disciples were compelled into the boat that uh, it is a strong demand or an urgent invitation uh, kind of approach. So I spent 20 minutes um, communicating my dissatisfaction with the word compelling in, uh, in that verse. All right. But here in 2 Corinthians 5.20, and this is a part of what we have as our uh, role in uh, the ministry of reconciliation. We are in Christ. We are a new creature. God is the one that reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Who's us? You and I, believers in the church age. You have a ministry of reconciliation. That's your ambassador function. I don't care if you're not a pastor, you're not a missionary, you're not an evangelist, doesn't matter. You're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. No matter your gift, no matter your calling, every believer has a priestly function, an ambassador function, and a soldier function. And it's totally irrelevant to your gift, your calling, your uh, ministry or effects or anything like that. And so committed to us, gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And there it is again in verse 19. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we're ministers of reconciliation and we have the word of reconciliation, which is the gospel message communicated to a lost and dying world. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. The Father works either through us in this capacity. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. An appeal. A begging entreaty. An appeal is like when you're throwing your your uh, self on your face before the judge and begging for mercy. It's an appeal through us. We beg you. You see the urgency in begging? We beg you. Think about begging. And you say, well, I, I don't want to beg. Begging is too, you know, what do you beg for? You know, your dog begs for table scraps or your children beg for whatever they beg for. Your husband's begging for whatever he's begging for. And just, what is this begging about? Well, it is strong language, isn't it? We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Begging. Do we have that kind of urgency in our own gospel message? 
I think that's the urgency when he sent out the slaves to the highways and hedges to compel them to come in. Send them out there. Beg them to come in. The door is closing. The door is closing. Beg them to come in. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, that's, uh, there ought to be a, a passion and a zeal in our, in our ambassador function. And so we have it there. All right. Well, we'll move on next week then. Verses 25 through 35 moves on to the demands of discipleship. And as I said, many of these excuses uh, come back again and, uh, and the different things. But there are demands that have to be met. And um, you have to count the cost. You have to consider the cost. You have to recognize there's a price to pay if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. But with divine viewpoint, it's no price to pay. You'd gladly pay it as far as that goes. So anyway, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that. Verses 25 through 35, one week from today. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.